Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a paid advertisement from BetterHelp. As a podcast listener, you've heard from us before. Today, let's hear from our members about what online therapy has done for them. I would recommend my therapist 1,000 times over. She has truly changed my life. The day after my first session, my friends and family said I sounded like myself again for the first time in weeks. You deserve to invest in your well-being. Visit BetterHelp.com to see what it can do for you. That's BetterHelp.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the podcast where my guests tell me the five things from their life that they would have preserved in a time capsule. They could pick anything from any time in their life, four things they cherish, but then also one thing that they wish they could erase from their past and forget. My guest telling me her choices in this episode is the actor Catherine Russell, who most recently played the consultant surgeon Serena Campbell in the BBC medical drama Holby City. But she's also been in, and this is just a small sample, The Casales with Hugh Bonneville. She was Ellie Chandler in Chandler and Company. The Inspector Dinley Mysteries, Always and Everyone, where she played Martin Shaw's wife, Izzy. Pete vs. Life with Rafe Spall, where she played my wife. They're always marrying her off, aren't they? Messiah, Poirot, Walking the Dead, Sherlock Holmes, May Gray, Silent Witness and Holding On. Catherine was in the film Bridget Jones, The Edge of Reason, and on stage she's been nominated for an Ian Charleston Award for her performance in Chekhov's Three Sisters and has played lead roles in The West End, The National, The Royal Court, The Soho Theatre, Chichester Festival Theatre, The Lyric Hammersmith, The Almeida and The Royal Exchange Manchester. Not bad, eh? Catherine recently finished a run at the Menier Chocolate Factory in Alan Bennett's Habeas Corpus, directed by Patrick Marber, alongside the actor Jack. Jasper Britton, who you may remember made a short appearance at the start of the episode of this podcast that I made with his sister, Fern Britton. In fact, we join our conversation as we were discussing Jasper's father, Tony Britton, who I worked with many years ago. So here are Catherine Russell's delightful choices for her time capsule. His father came to see, because what the butler saw was the last play, and Tony Britton came to Bath. And I happened to be on the stage just doing some mad sort of silly warm-up or something. And Jasper 
brought his father down onto the stage and his father was very, very old and mm. gnarled at that point, but walked, trotted on to the, to the stage at Bath, which of course is a, you know, absolute stunner. And he just completely opened up and he, tears came into his eyes and he went, oh, beautiful theatre. <laughs> it was just so moving. It was absolutely, absolutely fantastic to see that, you know, he just was a man of, uh, you know, of the theatre, as is, as is Jasper. I mean, it's in his marrow. I performed on that stage with him playing my father, Tony Britton. Wow. How about that for a circular conversation? How lovely. Okay, well, let's see where this conversation takes us. We're going to talk about five things from your life that you'd like to put into a time capsule. Yeah, lovely. Brilliant. So you can start anywhere you like. Well, the first thing to say is, oh, my God, it's worse than people say Desert Island Discs because it's just, (laughs) just, I mean, I've got, I am the most appalling sentimentalist. (laughs) So although I'm not a hoarder, I have got the most ridiculous things that I would hate to lose things like I've I've got the last tissue that my mother ever blotted her lipstick on I've kept that wow I've got diaries of my parents going right back to the early 60s and diaries of my own going back to when I was 12 so there are some instances in my life that can be looked at from three different people's perspective you know my 18th birthday for instance I've got photograph albums up I mean it's just it was torture (laughs) anyway so my first thing is my fireplace, but not actually my fireplace, but the books that are on it. Oh. And the books that are on my fireplace are all children's books. And they are children's books going back to my grandparents' children's books. But the ones that are most particular to me are the ones that essentially I can remember being read to by my father, Mm. who every night, oh, right up to being quite, you know, being able to read myself, although I wasn't a very good reader because I'm dyslexic, used to sit on the end of my bed and read to me. And he read to me all the Winnie the Poohs. The Hobbit is there, which I loathe, (laughs) but had to have read to me. But he read it with all the voices and everything. And then, and the reason that, the reason that the Hobbit is so important to me is that I then read that to my son, who absolutely adored it mm. and cried like a baby when, oh, Lord, which one is it dies? Is it Thorin Thought Sticks? One of the THs, you probably know. <laughs> um, one of the dwarfs, anyway, towards the end. I really couldn't give a shit about it. Um, but anyway, he absolutely loved it, cried like a baby, and then read it to my daughter, who literally went, Mum, do we have to? Please, can we stop? And I said, I promise we'll do Alice in Wonderland after this, but we have to read it. So there's The Hobbit. Then the other one that means a great deal to me of the children's books is The Tailor of Gloucester, which is Beatrix Potter's, which she published privately, I think, in 1901. And it was made public in, I think, 1903. And from the year it was published, my family, wherever they are in the world, have always read A Tailor of Gloucester on Christmas Eve. And it's just such a comforting thing to know that everybody will be reading that story. And that feeling I'm an only child an only child of an only child of an only child in actual fact but the feeling of being in your dressing gown and your nighty sat on the sofa with mum and dad on either side of you and the Christmas tree in front of you Hmm. horrible by the way when I think back on it sort of nasty cheap 
covered in tinsel and, and, and coloured lights, not tasteful white lights. <laughs> and that warmth and that family security and that Christmas Eve feeling. And there's one bit in it. Can I read you just a tiny bit? Yeah, do. It's only, what will it take? Two minutes. But the bit in it that always used to make me feel so magical was the idea that between Christmas Eve and the morning, the animals can talk. (laughs) This is the bit that she says. But it is in the old story that all the beasts can talk in the night between Christmas Eve and Christmas Day in the morning, though there are very few folk that can hear them or know what it is that they say. When the cathedral clock struck 12, there was an answer, like an echo of the chimes, and Simpkin heard it, and he came out of the tailor's door and wandered about in the snow. And from all the roofs and gables, old wooden houses in Gloucester came a thousand merry voices singing all the old Christmas rhymes, the old songs that I'd never heard of and some that I don't know, like Whittington's bells. First and loudest, the cocks cried, Dame, get up and bake your pies. Oh, dilly, 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 sighed Simpkin. And now in a great garret, there were lights and sounds of dancing and cats came from over the way. Hey, diddle, diddle, the cat and the fiddle. All the cats in Gloucester, except me, said Simpkin. (laughs) But it still makes the hairs on the back of my neck go up on end. Uh, Um, What a lovely thing, the idea of everybody, all your relatives, all reading that all over the world is a brilliant thought. It's just so comforting and so sweet. And um, (laughs) my husband falls asleep every year fast asleep and around the room we take it in turns to read it and the other one on Christmas Eve well Christmas in, in December the whole of December is we read um a Christmas carol which I know you did a reading of last year didn't mm. you and I did a reading on which is on my YouTube channel of it the year before and a Christmas carol um I think it's my favorite book of all time actually and we read and <laughs> I used to read it in the sitting room. December the first, I'd start reading it and people would come in and sit and listen to some of it, and some people would go off and some anyway, it's got to the point now where nobody comes and listens to it. <laughs> I sit there all on my own like a nutter, reading it to myself, which is why I put it on YouTube last year because I thought nobody else, <laughs> nobody else. The brilliant thing about that book is that, and people forget it unless you read it regularly or you know it terribly well, is that most of it is the tales of the ghosts and going back into the past and future. Hardly any of it is the bit that everybody remembers, which is his redemption. Mm. That lasts about three pages at the end. Mm. It just, Mm. bang, it's done. I mean, every film that's ever been made, he goes and takes presents to Tiny Tim. He doesn't in the book. No, he sends a turkey. (laughs) Yeah, but it's sort of implicit in it. The very fact that you know that he's been redeemed, you know what's going to happen. You know all the things, the lovely things that are going to happen. And that's the joy of it, I think. Yes, and what is it? What is it? It's something like he kept it better than any man. Any man alive, yes. He had no further intercourse with spirits, but lived upon the total abstinence principle there ever after. And it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well if, any man alive possessed the knowledge. Mm. May that be truly said of us and all of us, and so as Tiny Tim observed. God, God bless, bless us, everyone. Hooray. And there you are. I mean, you're already crying, aren't you? I mean, uh. just the memory of it is just the most fabulous thing. So, yes, so that's my first thing is those children's books and the memories of being read to and how important that is. And what a wonderful feeling of security and and how lucky I am to know that I had that, because I know not everybody does, mm. but to have that, that family security and the knowledge 
that true in your marrow knowledge that you are loved is just, just, I mean, it sets you up for the rest of your life, really, doesn't it? Yes, it it does. Yes. And how lovely that also that was passed down from your parents, from your grandparents. Mm. Your grandparents read those to your parents and then your parents read them to you. Yeah. And you to your children. Oh, absolutely. And still do. (laughs) Whether they want to hear them or not. (laughs) Oh, how lovely. And that leads me on very neatly, actually, to the second thing, which is my kitchen table. Mm -hmm. Now, my kitchen table is not a particularly special or a particularly beautiful table, but it was my grandparents' table. And again, childhood memories of, of my mother was not a cook at all. She had no interest in it and sort of had a slightly sort of feminist take on it really in so much as she just thought well I I don't have to cook so I'm not going to so I was brought up at my home in initially Clapham and then Sutton on things like I don't know you probably had a great cook for a mum or dad but (laughs) for a dad strangely my dad was good yeah well that's great for that period as well right Mm -hmm. because most dads didn't really then did they didn't take much interest um well I was brought up on things like Boil in a bag, cod in parsley sauce. <laughs> and I kid you not, tinned potatoes. Oh, yes. I mean, dear God. But my grandmother, my mother's mother, on the other hand, A, didn't live in the town, lived in the countryside. And B, had a big garden and we had a postage stamp. And in that garden, she had her own little Mr. McGregor, really, mm. Beatrice Potter. But, she, you know, they, they, were, they were quite well off. They had a gardener and they had space for vegetables and things. And the absolute jaw-dropping amazement and the magic that I got from picking vegetables, bringing them inside, and then seeing the individual ingredients being made into something, this one thing, has stuck with me all my life. And I love cooking. But we used to sit at my kitchen table that I've got now in their house. Mm. And it felt huge to me yeah living in the sort of you know semi-detached in Sutton most of the time to then go to this big house with this big kitchen table I think they were given it maybe as a wedding present or something like that and they had it all there certainly all my life it's that it was at their house mm-hmm. and then when they got elderly and they moved to a smaller place it can sort of be unhooked if you see what I mean it's sort of in it's sort of even though it's a big oak table it's sort of in bits and my parents took it and rarely used it. It sort of got hid behind a sofa because there wasn't really any room, but it got brought out. Gosh, there's a theme of Christmas coming, isn't it? <laughs> it got brought out on Christmas Day. Mm. So it then it gained this significance of being sort of slightly magical. But they never really used it. And then when we knocked through one room to another, suddenly we had a big kitchen and, sat, and I just said, listen, please, can I have that table? And they said, yes. So if there's any one piece of furniture that I own that has the stories and the meals around it from generations and generations, it is this table. Mm. And, you know, I, I, I think that those family meals, I mean, if your dad was a good cook, I mean, you must have had wonderful family meals as well, didn't you? Mostly my dad was only really available at weekends. So we would have really good Saturday lunches and always excellent Sunday lunch. How lovely. In the hope that my mother wouldn't insist on cooking it. <laughs> my father and I joined, uh, we joined the choir together and we both liked to sing. So from about the age of 13, 14, I was in the choir with him at the church. But it meant the sacrifice we made then was that my mother would prepare the vegetables. <laughs> they were always terrible. That's so funny. <laughs> and did you have brothers and sisters? I had two brothers, yes. 
And we always sort of ate at the table, I think, at weekends. But during the week, it was always just my mother was a nurse, so we, we didn't. We had food on the lap, you know. We'd often prepare it ourselves. In fact, I think I ate oxtail soup for about three years in a row. Yes, yes. Angel Delight was the go-to for me. <laughs> um, yes, I mean, in my, my family, I mean, they, my parents and, and I, everybody ate at different times. Because mm. so my dad, because he'd been in the theatre most of his life, would always eat at five o'clock before going to the theatre. And I would always, anyway, it was kind of crazy, but I sort of inherited my grandparents' way of being around food more than my parents. Mm. I had friends, though, in the 60s. You would go to their house and they wouldn't have a table. Oh, really? Weird, isn't it? Yeah. Well, yeah, it seems weird to me. I mean, we do sometimes eat in front of the telly. Who doesn't? That's a lovely thing to do, Mm. you know, order a pizza and sit in front of the telly. But on the whole, if I'm going to cook, I want to sit and chat. Yeah. Were your grandparents at all involved in theatre? No. Uh, Well, I say no like that. My fathers were. They were um, very keen amateur dramatics. And I've got some wonderful photographs of them dressed up in all their finery doing sort of amdram stuff. And my grandmother, it was said, would have gone on the stage were it not for it being not the done thing. Mm. And she carried on doing amateur dramatics all her life. Yes. Whereas you don't mind being thought of as a tart. No. No. Not at all. I find something rather flattering to still be thought of as a part of the grand old age <laughs> Oh, I love the idea of a beautiful table. Particularly, I have to say, all sensible tables are ones that can be made small or large, depending on how yes. many people are coming. Yes, and my husband's built a marvellous extension for this one, so we can actually, if we really shove it and push it about a bit, can sit about 25, which makes me sound like I live in a castle. It's just a big kitchen. It's a very big kitchen. It's actually a flat in Stratton. But that's good enough. Yes, it's the same place we've lived all our lives, which brings me on to... Number three. Number three. Hurrah! Which is going to sound really sentimental and boring, but it has got a story behind it, which is my wedding ring. So I was doing a television series called Chelworth with the lovely Gemma Jones playing my mum and Peter Jeffries playing my dad. And we'd already filmed two episodes of it. And in the third episode was the good old bad old days I'm sure you remember where you had things like read-throughs. Long, long time ago. So we're having a read-through of three and four. And there was a young actor there, I was 23 at the time, who had been uh, cast to play an ex-boyfriend for just, I think, two or three scenes. And I felt a bit sorry for him because I thought, oh, that's it must be a bit weird because everybody knows each other. We've already filmed. So I went up and said, oh, hello, hello. This must be a bit strange coming down as we all know each other, but welcome, welcome. He said... Don't worry, I've just come downstairs from a far worthier piece. <laughs> and I thought, I hate you. And his name I was introduced to was Otto Jarman. So I rushed home, I mentioned diaries before, wrote in my journal at the time, I hate this actor called Otto. What a stupid name must be made up, Otto Jarman. This is going to be torture. <laughs> well, in about three days, I was writing, I love Otto Jarman. He's so gorgeous and funny and really... Anyway, turns out it was a made-up name. Hey. His name is Richard Holmes. And still on the same job, <laughs> we got married in secret. Good Lord. Ten weeks after we first kissed. And we didn't tell anybody. And um, what had happened was we were staying in the hotel while I was still filming this <laughs> this TV series. <laughs> and I got a pregnancy scare. And in those good old bad old days, pregnancy tests 
you know, you peed on the what's it like you do now, but it took all night mm. for the result to come through. It wasn't the three minute thing. And we went out and we discussed what we would do if I was pregnant and we thought we'd probably keep it because we were madly in love. This, by the way, was only six weeks into um, after being kids. Good Lord. Woke up the next morning, looked at it, and it was negative. Oh. And rather than both going, oh, thank Christ for that, we both burst into tears. So from six weeks on, we were trying for a baby. How mad is that? Anyway, decided to get married in secret. Got on the, on the back of his motorbike. How cool and crazy. Drove down to Brixton Registry Office. Had no witnesses. I mean, how, it was literally not thinking. I was 23, he was 25. So we persuaded, <laughs> we persuaded people from the street eventually. I mean, some people were like, well, what's in it for me? But eventually we got um, a man who was a scaffolder, but was helping the florist man outside. He agreed to come and be a witness. <laughs> and a man from the shop who insisted on going home and get changes to his suit, which we begged him not to because we'd be late, but he did. He was a witness. Anyway, we stood there with this man marrying us, who was obviously quite cross because we kept giggling. Every time it came to the word solemn, he would sort of solemn. That solemn vow, solemn. We were giggling, giggling. And then he said, and have you got the ring? No, no ring. Hadn't thought about a ring. Oh, no. The first and only time in my career ever, I think, I had worn home my character's ring, which was a Russian wedding ring, one of those ones with three. I don't even like the thing. And I went, oh, yes, 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 here, here it is. It's such a trite <laughs> thinking I was taking it off without the man seeing I'm sure he was seeing I'm sure he thought this was doomed. <laughs> Passed it over to Richard and put the wedding ring on my finger. Went back to the BBC and, at the, and still nobody knew we were married. But at the end of the job, I said, can I, can I have that ring? Uh, my character's please, could I have my character ring? And they said, yes, £14.50. <laughs> so my wedding ring was £14.50 from the BBC. And it's still on my hand, but only just. It's now so, I'm looking at it now, it's so thin and so bent out of shape. I don't think it's going to see me out. But I would be, I've lost it twice. I lost it once in Rockwell Park, Lido. And they very sweetly searched through all the filters and found it. Oh. That was a miracle. And once I left it behind on tour somewhere in the theatre and, and they found it and sent it on. Mm. And I would be loathed to lose it, even though I just, I would say that would have to come with me. Well, we'll keep it safe in the time capsule thank for you. Thank you very much. Yes. And thank goodness the BBC didn't say, which they may well have done. No, I'm afraid we have to keep that because we might do another series. Yes. Continuity. Or even worse, we're going to do another series and it's a different actress, so we need that ring for her. <laughs> yes, that wouldn't have been very nice. <laughs> that has sort of happened to me once before. I remember doing a pilot playing Stephanie Cole and Richard Wilson's daughter, along with two others playing their sons. And we all thought we'd done a very good job. But when it came to being made, they sacked us all. And completely recast all the children with much younger, much slimmer, much prettier people. Uh, it's awful. awful. I did lose my wedding ring as a result of having taken it off and been asked to take it off by the costume people. And I struggled to get it off and took it off. And then I gave it to them and said, well, you know, be careful with it. And they said, yeah, of course, of course. And then when I went to them and said, have you got my wedding ring? They said, yeah, we put it in your pocket. <gasps> oh, no. I said, no, it's, it's not in my pocket. And they said, oh, oh, you must have dropped it then. So I was blamed for losing my wedding ring. Oh. Never found again. How long ago was that? Uh, that was the first ring. The second ring, 
I lost. <laughs> I took off for a stage play. I've been through a few, actually. My wife likes the idea, I think, because she has something to buy me for Christmas. Oh, I'll buy you another wedding ring. You know you're not losing them, don't you? As you take them off to wash your hands and she's stealing them and throwing them away. <laughs> she's got a business. Richard didn't wear one. And he said, oh, I'll wear one when we've been married for 10 years, which, of course, at 25 felt like a, you know, a lifetime away. Mm. So when 10 years came around, he bought one for himself off the internet. I think it was... It lasted about six months and that was it. <laughs> yeah. My wife's idea of being slightly romantic when we got married was that we actually bought jade rings and they looked lovely. And almost immediately I did a play and on the opening night I slammed my hand down on a desk in anger <laughs> and it shattered into a thousand pieces. That was the end of my jade ring. Has your wife still got hers? She still wears it, yes. Oh, that's very nice. Mm. How long have you been married? 40 years, Catherine. Wow. Have you, had, have you actually had your 40th anniversary? We have, Is yes. It? Right in the middle of lockdown. Oh. We had half a bottle of champagne and then went, should we watch the telly? <laughs> <laughs> 40 years. That's really fantastic. It's just luck. Total, total luck. Particularly with us. We didn't even really know each other. We just sort of smelt right, I think. <laughs> Okay, that's Catherine Russell's third item, her wedding ring, which goes into the time capsule. But before we hear her fourth, we're going to take a short ad break. We'll be back in a minute. Hi, I'm DeLon Grant. And I'm Francesca Ramsey, and together we host the podcast Let Me Fix It. Each week we explore something from the past, and then we pitch how to fix it for today. But forget about the past, let's talk about the new show of the moment. DeLon, did you get a chance to watch the new Queenie trailer I sent you? How dare you send me this amazing <laughs> show that took me back to every messy breakup I've ever had. Thank God I had you through my 20s. Now, you could not pay me to go back and relive those days, but thankfully, we will be living as Queenie navigates her messy 20s. All episodes of Queenie premiere June 7th streaming on Hulu. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome back. Right, let's get straight back to Catherine Russell and find out what her fourth item for the time capsule is. We were away on a wedding anniversary once in Nailsworth in the Cotswolds. Mm -hmm. And we were sort of stomping about looking at things and we stumbled across a carpenter who had a workshop and who had carved walking sticks. And they weren't heads that were stuck on. They were literally carved within the wood, if you see what it is, mm. the long stick and at the top of the stick were animals. And we absolutely fell in love with them and rather sort of without much thought um, because we, I don't think we had vast amounts of money at the time. But anyway, <laughs> we bought six of them. One has a deer head, an eagle, a goat, an albatross, a duck and a weasel. And they're very beautiful things in and of themselves. And they live on a wall in, in our hall. 
So they're lovely in and of themselves. They're lovely because it reminds us of that nice time in Elton. But, <laughs> gosh, Christmas again. Um, <laughs> every Christmas day since we've had them, which is a very long time ago, on Christmas morning, everybody, I've got two kids, and regardless of their age and height, size, weight, whatever, and their partners, if they have them at the time, all cram into our bed and open stockings. And then after we've opened our stockings, nobody's allowed to get dressed. Oh, no, no, no. You stay in your pyjamas and you put on various coats and dressing gowns and Christmas hats of all descriptions. And you grab one of these walking sticks and you walk across the common. I mean, we look insane, singing (laughs) Christmas carols (laughs) and waving and shouting Merry Christmas to anybody we see. And... People seem to like it. People film it. People come up. Car horns beep. It's just the silliest thing. And we cross over. That we walk across the other side of the common. When we had a dog, we used to do an hour's. <laughs> we used to do an hour's walk, looking like this. <laughs> and we go across the common, and we go to our friends, the Renners. And our friends, the Renners. This is at about ten o'clock in the morning. I should taste about open yeah. the first bottle of champagne. Perfect. And they then, and tradition has it, how this tradition started, I can't remember. But they then show us their stockings, what they got given in their stockings. So each person, each member of their family puts their stockings on a tray and shows us what they were given in their stocking. Now, their stockings are very different from our stockings. Our stockings are the best bit. You know, under the tree, you might get a tea towel if you're lucky. But in the stocking, that's where the treasure is. Well, theirs are nothing but gags. It's just all silliness and (laughs) hoot with laughter and then stagger back across the common with our wonderful walking sticks that I would be very sorry to say goodbye to because of that memory of Christmas and because of the the beauty of them. They're just very beautiful things. Mm -hmm. You are absolutely persuading me that I've not done Christmas right. (laughs) (laughs) I think everyone's traditions are are so fascinating. It's one of my favourite topics of conversation when it comes up to, well, actually, I start talking about Christmas in about August, if I'm honest. Hmm. But I love hearing about what other people's Christmas days are. Hmm. But I think Christmas morning is the best bit. Yeah. It's the stockings and the walking with the walking sticks and the singing of the carols as we go. And then coming slightly squiffy back. Mm. What do you do on Christmas morning? I get up. I wait for my children and my grandchildren to turn up at about 10 o'clock where we have Christmas breakfast. So we have scrambled eggs and smoked salmon Christmas breakfast around the table. And by then I will be wearing my Christmas suit, which is (laughs) bright red and covered in snowmen. Like you're doing Christmas hands down. That's fantastic. <laughs> that's absolutely that's marvellous. Richard wears um lederhosen. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, you've got grandchildren. Gosh, I'm so jealous. I've got four. Oh god, how delicious. Really delicious, I have to say. My mother was a grandmother at 50, and I keep thinking, God, lucky her. That's so young to be a grandmother. Yes, I'm hoping to get lots of years. In a way, my ambition is that I would like at some stage to buy each of them lunch at whichever town they're at university in. That's a great ambition. Yeah. It would be nice to think that we were remembered. Yeah, fondly. Fondly. My dad's dad died when my dad was only 21, so I never met him. Mm. And his mother I did meet, but my mum didn't like her very much, which was a shame because it's sort of, and I was very close to my mum, so it sort of put me off. And I, 
And I look back at her journals. I have her diaries, some of her wartime diaries as well. And I think, oh, she was quite funny. That's a shame. I wonder, that's a shame I felt that. Mm. And then the others died when I was sort of 12. And I do remember her, but I don't remember her other than the cooking and the table. I don't remember that much. And my grandfather, I do remember very clearly, though, very clearly. Yes. When you think of your own memory, so I sort of remember things from about five years of age mm. onwards. And then I really remember things once I hit teenage years, nine, ten. I can remember things in detail then. And so really, we're just hitting the point where my grandchildren will start remembering things for the rest of their life about me. So this is where I start, in a way. Yes. All the things I've done so far... I can tell them about, but they won't necessarily remember. You could have been vile to them up to now. <laughs> could have got away with murder. <laughs> well, they won't forget that Christmas suit. I'll tell you that for nothing. That sounds absolutely wonderful. I'd like to see you in that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send you a photograph. Well, there we are. Okay, so let's move on to the next thing. Your last item, I think. Oh, is this the thing that we want to throw away? Yes, it is. Well, I'm going to... I'm going to be all serious now because I, I was thinking, you know, there's all sorts of funny things one could say, but there is one thing that I really, really, really would like to throw away and never think of ever again. Mm. And that is, and I don't know why I keep it because of course I could throw it away. Um, my mother's cancer notes. Oh, so when no. my mother was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and was told that she'd probably have a couple of years. She was only 68. And when she was diagnosed, she was 70 when she died. All the women in my family die at 70. I'm gone. I'm long gone by the time I hit 70. My mother died at 70. My mother's mother died at 70. My mother's sister died at 70. 70, that's it. I'm, I'm out of here. <laughs> but I hope I'm not out of here like she was out of here. So mm. she kept notes on all of her medication and how she felt and what the doctor said. And, and I've kept it and I'm not, I'm not really quite sure why I've kept it. I'm a great believer in and campaigner for dying with dignity. And I simply don't understand why we cling on to life at all costs. So she was diagnosed with, it was actually called partial peritoneal cancer. It's essentially ovarian cancer, mm. but quite late on because the symptoms of ovarian cancer are, are quite mild um, and you don't really, if you're not careful, which is why I would say to all women, just you know, look them up, learn them and learn to recognise them early, which yeah. case, but if you don't, by the time you are getting proper symptoms, it could be too late as it was for her. Um, at the end, they did this thing. I don't know whether any of your relatives, they don't do it anymore, thank God, but it was called the Liverpool Pathway. It basically said, the Liverpool Pathway basically said, we will not give this person any food or water or and they will just die. Mm -hmm. But towards the end of her treatment, sorry to bring the tone so down, but it's important, but towards the end of her life, she started uh, being sick and was taken in and <laughs> she had a hole in her bowel. Wow. Oh which had probably been something to do with so much chemotherapy because then chemotherapy was such a blunt instrument. Mm. I don't think it is quite the blunt instrument now that it was then, but then it really was. And she was told, okay, well, now you've, you've either got between two days and two weeks to live. And I said to her, well, which would you prefer, mum, two days or two weeks? Oh, two days, two mm. days. Mm. 
And towards the end of it, it was really, I won't depress you by giving you the gory details or your listeners, but it was really shocking. Yeah. Just a terrible, terrible, terrible way to die and so unnecessary. And the thing that is upsetting about this silly little book, which I haven't talked to you, I think maybe I will just go and throw it away, is in little spindly, spindly writing, she had written Catherine spooking me. I told them to make her leave. And that's pretty much the last entry. And what had happened was that she was having hallucinations. <laughs> the hallucinations to begin with were actually rather, well, hilarious, really. She turned to my, my father and go, well, this is a dreadful hotel. We're <laughs> never coming back here again. Never. <laughs> and then things like, well, that was a really good crocheting lesson. Really? Crocheting? She'd never picked up a needle in her life. Where she got that from, I've got no idea. And those sort of hallucinations, I thought the heart, my, they upset my dad terribly. And I would say to him, but don't be upset because it's great because she doesn't, she doesn't know she's stuck in a hospital bed dying. She doesn't know that. Isn't that good? I mean, thank God. But this last one was me sat, sat with her and her calling or buzzing a, a nurse to come in. And he came in and said, what's the matter? And she, and she, she said, this, it's her fault. She's murdered them. She's got to go. She's got to go. And that was pretty much the last thing she actually ever said to me, mm. which is grim, right? Terribly upsetting. Why am I keeping it? I don't know. I don't know either. I don't know. Although now, clearly, you don't need to look at it to know it. In a way, really, what, what we're doing is if you could just reject this from your life completely and just go, well, that's gone. I never think about it. It doesn't bother me. But unfortunately, I don't quite have that power. I promise it, but I don't really have it. And I've done the same thing. I've sat with friends who were dying of cancer. And you're right, that last bit where every breath you're waiting for it to be their last one no. It's a very painful period. It's a very painful time. And you just sit and think, just let it stop. Please let it stop. Yes. The nurse said to me, because it did go on for two weeks, it wasn't two days. Mm. And I and my husband, Richard, said to me, I've never seen you so angry because I was so angry that, that she wasn't dying. Yes. And one day the nurse said to me, oh, go, just go, go home. Say you're going home to have a shower and she, she'll probably die while you're, while you're not there. No, that didn't work. Um, and then. One of them admitted to me that they had given her a little something. And she said, actually, she's very naughty, but she said to me, well, that would have done for a horse, but it hasn't done for your mother. Wow. Naughty but kind, I think. So kind. Mm. So kind. Oh, God, I was deeply, deeply grateful to her. But it didn't do the trick. Um, and she said to me, is your mother a control freak? I went, God, yes. She said she was a real control freak. Was she? I went, absolutely. She said, that's what she's trying to do. She's trying to control her death. Mm. So I went into her. My dad wasn't there. He would have hated it. But I went in and she hadn't spoken for a couple of days by this point. So I have no idea whether she heard me. But I said, Mum, you can't control this one. You can't control your death. And it's okay. You can die. Me and dad will be fine. It's time to die now. She died half an hour later. Mm. Isn't that it's extraordinary? My mother was uh, worked for Marie Curie when she retired as a nurse, and she spent a lot of evenings, well, a lot of nights. She would take over from families and look after cancer patients. And she told me once 
that often that's when people die. She would get them ready, she would settle them down, and then she would say to them, I'm a professional, so if you want to go, it's fine. And I promise you, when your family return, everything will look fine. And so she gave them the permission that you gave your mother, but they trusted her. They knew that it wouldn't upset their family. And in a way, I think, if it gives you any... um, Mm. If it helps at all, that whole thing of your mother saying, go, get out, I can Mm. completely understand that because that's, I don't want to do this in front of you because I think it'll upset you too much. Yes, and to say to to her, we'll be okay. Yeah. Yes, extraordinary. Well, my mother was a social worker who dealt specifically with the elderly. (laughs) She got nicknamed the angel of death because that's probably where I got the idea from because she used to do exactly that. Just like you said your mother did, she would do the same thing for, for, for people. Yes. It's sort of like you need permission in a way. But isn't it extraordinary that we have that power of our will to just hang on and hang on? Mm. Even though, as you say, she said, no, I'd like to go. Mm. I'm sure, and, and I'm sure that, that your mother and my mother and the nurse that I was there was, it, it is right. It is that, particularly for a parent, I think, that thing of, of just not wanting to upset everybody. And, and, and I remember her, when she told me the diagnosis the first time, she burst into tears and she said to me that that was the first time that she'd cried about it. It was the thought, it was having to tell me mm. that made her upset. Yes. More than in and of itself. And I'm sure you can agree with that absolutely no completely the thing that makes me okay with it and okay with this sort of conversation and you say I'm sorry to bring the tone down but without the tone being brought down at some points in our lives we wouldn't treasure the wedding ring we picked up for nothing and the table Mm. that we have in our kitchen from our grandparents Mm. and the books on the fireplace we wouldn't treasure those things as much if everything was perfect so it's important that they all go together I think Yes, absolutely. And it makes for a rich life. You know, it can all be sunshine. And I have no fear of death in and of itself because I'm I'm an atheist. So to me, what's to fear? It'll just be like it was before I was born. Mm. That was nothing. But I, I ain't going that way. I'm telling you that for nothing. I will do everything in my power to avoid that little end. <laughs> Pillow over my head, please. <laughs> it's like I have both my kids at home. Both of my children were born, uh, well, one of them was born about three feet from where I'm sitting now. <laughs> and the other one was born in the bath. I like the idea, if possible, of ending my life in my home as well as bringing life into my home. Mm. Yes. Well, how lovely. How lovely to talk to you about the things that you treasure in life and uh, and also that awful experience. But thank you, Catherine. Thank you for talking to me. It's been lovely. Well, it's been so difficult to choose. That's the thing. We could do it all over again. Maybe <laughs> I am a holder. Anyway, thank you so much for asking me. It's been an absolute pleasure. That's all right. I'll see you at the same time tomorrow for another fight. <laughs> You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Catherine Russell. This has been a cast-off production for Acast. 
You can, of course, subscribe to this podcast to get all new episodes as they're released. And if you enjoyed listening, then please do rate the show. You may even feel the urge to write a short review, for which we are always grateful. We love a bit of an urge. Feel free to follow me and my time capsule on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, and to comment on shows and suggest future guests. We always do our best to reply. You can download the theme tune and play it at your next rave. It's by Pass the Peas Music and is available on Spotify. The producer of this show was my talented son, John, who has the same surname as me, Fenton Stevens. My wife chose John, actually. I wanted to name him after my father, but she didn't like the name Dad. You see, that's the problem with a podcast. You can't hear the laughter, but whoever it was, it's you and me against the rest, mate. And as for the rest of you, I know you're out there. I can hear you breathing. Bye-bye. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com slash covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. Warbyparker.com slash covered. Hey, marketers. Want a matchmaker to set you up with your perfect audience? Well, look no further. Get intimate right away with host Red sponsorships with Acast. Use Acast's self-serve ad platform to search and partner up with a podcast or two from our network of more than 100,000 shows. Have them sing your praises in their own words. And get their listeners ready to be wooed into loyal customers. It's the ultimate loving endorsement. Book host-read sponsorships with Acast. Head to go.acast.com closer to get started.